So I'm gonna walk through the atonement, the reality of what Christ achieved, and Satan's mass fraud that actually is the predominant view in Christianity. So why did Christ have to die the atonement through the seven levels? Level one, reward and punishment. Thinking explains Christ's death by God, was, uh, God said don't do something. They disobeyed. They did what he said not to do. God got offended and angry and responded with vengeance, taking the life of Jesus in our place. This is known as the satisfaction theory of atonement. If you've ever heard some of these theories, this is the satisfaction theory. Level two, this is the marketplace exchange because Satan had now rights to the earth after the fall of, of man and claimed the lives of the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve and God struck a bargain with him to exchange the life of Christ for the life of humans or the, as in the lion, witch, in the wardrobe, uh, Aslan had to give his life to the white witch to free the sons of Adam. This is the marketplace exchange. This is known as the ransom theory of atonement. Had to pay a ransom. Level three, social conformity, so that all will agree that God's government is fair in dealing with sin. This is known as the governmental theory of atonement. Level four, law and order. Jesus died in order to pay a legal penalty the law demanded and the heavenly judge imposed. The law must be kept. Humanity broke the law. Someone had to pay the penalty. Jesus paid that penalty, so the integrity of the law was maintained. This is known as penal substitution theology. Level five, love for other people. Because God loved us too much to let us go, his death was the means to reach us with his love and restore us to trust in him. This is known as the moral influence theory of atonement. Level six, principle-based living. It was the only means to fix what sin had actually done to God's creation. When humanity sinned, it deviated from God's design for life, and the condition was now terminal. Christ came to fix what sin did to this creation. Thus, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Now, here's the reason. So that we might become the righteousness of God. Notice, it does not say so that we might be declared righteous even though we're not. That's the penal level four view. Legally being declared righteous, even though, no, no, no. He came so that we might become the righteousness of God. Be restored, be healed, be regenerated, be recreated, become righteous. This is known as the Christus Victor and the recapitulation theories of atonement. Both of them describe this restoration. Some use the language of he took humanity broken and damaged by Adam and carried it into completion and perfection. That's the same thing. Level seven, understanding friend of God, Christ died to reveal truth, to win humanity to trust, John 8, 32, to destroy death that we've already talked about, to destroy Satan and his power, the power of lies, to restore humanity back to God's ideal, to, to uh, restore the image of God in man, and to secure the universe unfallen in its innocence. All things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. Colossians 1, 20. This is the healing reality what Christ is actually doing, eradicating the infection of sin from his entire universe and healing his creation back into harmony with his design. Level seven, understanding friend of God is doing right because it's actually right. And right doing pleases God. Neither God nor his law changes in a level seven understanding. 
These are the eternal principles upon which life is built. They don't change. But human beings, which were damaged by sin and taken out of harmony, are changed to be back in harmony with God and His law. That's where the change takes place. At level seven, we understand that God speaks to people at all the different levels, and thus we can find God speaking in the language of reward and punishment, etc., to the children to try to help them grow up. However, it's a mistake to stay stuck at earlier levels of understanding and refuse to mature, regardless of how useful those understandings were when we were children. Just imagine if you had a college student, your, your, your 20-year-old son or daughter went away to university and they're in the dorm brushing their teeth one night and, uh, and their roommate they just met say, what are you doing? I'm brushing my teeth. Well, why are you doing that? Well, my mother has a rule. <laughs> do you think, I'm so proud of that child, so obedient. How many Christians, why do you do this, that, or the other? Well, God has a law. What if you don't? Well, God will punish. Do you think God's going, I'm so proud of them? Or it's like, when will you grow up? Grow up. Mature way to understanding the Bible metaphors. Satisfaction theory. So what I showed you are the traditional explanations. You will find them out in theological writings out there. What I just showed you about the seven different um, levels of maturity corresponding to seven different levels of uh, theological um, atonement models. But there is actually a mature level seven understanding of these biblical metaphors of the atonement that are not level one, two, three, and four, and so forth. They're actually level seven understanding. Satisfaction theory from a level seven lens understands that creation after sin is out of harmony with God and is dying in a terminal condition. God now is like a parent who has a child dying of leukemia. And all the parents in the room, if you have a child dying in leukemia, what is the only thing that will truly and genuinely satisfy you? A remedy that heals your child. That's the only thing. And this is the only thing that will satisfy God now is a remedy. And thus it says in Isaiah 53.11, he will see the result, the result of his suffering of his soul and be satisfied. See, this satisfaction was not to take away anger or wrath or, or somehow calm God down and satisfy his uh, sense of justice. It was to actually save his children that he loves. And he's, and he's satisfied. It works. It's sufficient. It will redeem. It will restore. It will save. I'm satisfied. That's a level seven understanding of satisfaction. Ransom theory, level seven understanding. A ransom is the price that is required to free someone held in bondage. That's what it is, functionally. Well, what holds us in bondage? The lies about God that we believe and our own carnal natures. That's what holds us in bondage of sin. Then what's the price to set us free? Truth and a new nature. This is, again, the metaphor of flesh and blood, the metaphor of bread and wine. As we take the bread, the word made flesh, the truth, it becomes building blocks that frees us from the lies, that opens us to trust, and the Holy Spirit takes the life of Christ, which is the wine of the blood, and reproduces it in us. We get a new character, new nature, new motives, new drives, new desires. The old is gone, the new has come. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. This is the ransom price. And when you understand the ransom price was the price necessary to free you from lies and to free you from fear and selfishness, who gets the price paid to them? Who receives it? You and me. We receive the truth and we receive the life of Christ dwelling within. Governmental theory, 
God rules on design law. It's understood that God's government runs on the laws that he established his universe to operate upon, love, truth, liberty. God can heal minds, i.e. win to love and trust, only in harmony with his methods. That's why it says in Romans 2.4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. We're not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works. What God wants is he wants your love, he wants your trust, he wants your loyalty, he wants your devotion. He can never get it by threatening to kill you if you don't give it. And thus it is revealed through the way he's achieved our salvation that only his design methods work and his government is sustained. Thus God's government and design laws are sustained as the only methods upon which life, health, and peace operate. Penal substitution theory. This metaphor is not actually found in Scripture. It was created by Martin Luther to counter the doctrine of purgatory. Do you understand at the time of Martin Luther's Reformation... Um, the Catholic Church taught the doctrine of purgatory, and it was used to really manipulate and exploit the masses. There was this idea that people were in this intermediate state of some type of suffering or purging of sin. They weren't uh, condemned to hell, but they hadn't had victory in sin in their life, so they go to this intermediate state where the sins are purged through some type of suffering, and you can accelerate your loved one's purging if you give gold to the church. If you do some work for the church, you do a great fresco in, a, in the chapel somewhere, then your loved ones will have less purging to do and they can launch on to heaven. And so this idea of purgatory was being used to manipulate the masses. And so Martin Luther came along with this penal substitution model and he said, you know, all sins, past, present, and future, were put on Christ at the cross and punished by God at the cross. Thus, there are no unpunished sins left to be purged in a place called purgatory. And so he created this doctrine to take the power of the Roman church from manipulating people the doctrine of purgatory. It's not found in Scripture. And it's also based on the same root lie that God's law functions like human law and sins have to be punished by the ruling authority and our sins were punished in Jesus, uh, by God in Jesus at the cross. Well, what about the added law? Yes, God added law. Galatians says the law was added. It was added as a schoolmaster and a hedge of protection to diagnose us as a mirror we'd look into because we didn't understand God's design anymore, so he added the Ten Commandments and other ceremonial laws as hedges of protection, diagnostic instruments, and teaching tools to lead us to the reality of our condition and his solution for it. But there was never any salvation in the law. It was only diagnostic and protective. Moral influence theory is accepted as part of a larger reality that God absolutely had to reveal truth to destroy lies to win us to trust. But it's understood that it's incomplete. Revealing truth to win us to trust in God still leaves us short of a remedy that fixes our carnal nature. And so we ha Christ had to do more than simply reveal truth to win us to trust. He had to overcome the, the carnal nature and restore the law of love into humanity. And that's the Christus Victor recapitulation that he under, uh, understood that Christ's victory over all opposition to his methods here on earth. Truth overcomes lies. Love overcomes selfishness in Christ's life journey on earth. Jesus took up humanity, broken and damaged by sin, and perfected it. Jesus became the human being that Adam was designed to become. He came as the second Adam not the second Tim Jennings. Get your mind around that. Adam 
was the head of the human race. All human beings are descended from Adam. Jesus came as the second Adam and becomes the new head of the human race. And we who partake of Christ become grafted in and become part of that new creation. He fixed, healed, perfected humanity. This is the healing reality. And uh, uh, level seven, accepts the moral influence theory as part of the, uh, the truth that needs to destroy lies to win us to trust, accepts the victory of Christ over Satan directly here on earth, over humanity's carnal nature, over the lies, over the infection of selfishness, and restores love into the humanity he assumed. But it realizes that there's a larger war going on than just here on earth, that all things in heaven as well as on earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross, and Christ was cleansing his entire universe through what he achieved here at the cross. That's the level seven healing reality. So keys, key learning points, atonement actually means at one meant. Taking a little side, some questions came in to explain that. Back in 1611, when the King James Bible was written, there was a verb spelled O-N-E, one. We have a noun, which is the numeral or number one. We have a noun, one. But they had a verb, action word, one. And if two parties were at odds, warring with each other, the, in 1611, King James English, you say, I'm going to go one them. Bring the two into one. It's an action word. Bring them in. And it very be quick, quickly became, instead of one, it's going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to at one them. But it wasn't pronounced at one. It was pronounced in the old English, a tone. Just like when you're all by yourself, you're not all one, you're alone. And so it was pronounced atone. I'm going to go atone them. And atonement didn't mean appease, didn't mean pay. It meant bring two parties that are in opposition back into unity. That's what it meant when the King James Bible was written, the atonement, the process of bringing parties that are broken or fractured back into unity or oneness. So atonement actually means at one meant. And Christ's action brings humanity, which was broken off and alienated from God, back into unity with God through all the things that Christ achieved that we described in the earlier lecture. Humankind cannot fix itself or restore us to unity with God and his design for life. Jesus became human and restored humanity to the unity with the creator. Those who trust Jesus will experience his perfection reproduced in them via the indwelling spirit. Okay, it's time for another roundtable discussion.